Well, good morning, church. How are you today? Nice to see you. Will you pray with me as we begin? God, we thank you for life and breath. We thank you for the joy of singing your praise, reflecting upon lyrics that we didn't write, um, but that can still be the cry of our heart. What a joy it is to come before you and to, and to pray through song, open our eyes and open our ears and turn our hearts. God, that's desperately what we need. More than we need to hear some guy talk, we need to hear your voice. So I pray that you would drown me out today, that you would go beyond what I'm capable of, that you would do what I cannot do in this space, that you would speak to each and every heart, that no matter who we are in this place, no matter what we bring, no matter where we've been, no matter where it is that you're taking us in the future, God, each and every individual in this place would hear from you. As we turn our attention to your word, as we worship you through its study, we pray that you would be glorified and that your voice would resound in this place, that we would see you and hear you and understand you and be changed by you. And we pray that in Christ's name, amen. Well, my name is Darren. I'm one of the pastors on staff. If you're uh, new to the family around here, or maybe you're just a guest, you're visiting, we're excited that you're here. If you're watching online, we're excited that you're, that you're paying attention, uh, and we'd love to have you just, you, might, you should just come and join us. I got, I got like a whole row in the front here saved for you. So if you get in your car now and come down, you can have it. Uh, we are, uh, we're in the midst of a study in the book of John that's ongoing. I hope that each and every one of you have already picked up a copy of the journals. We bought journals uh, that have both the Gospel of John and then a journaling page on each one. We'd love for everybody who considers this church their home, or actually, even if you're a guest, grab one of those today in the lobby, uh, because we don't just want to listen to God's Word. Uh, we we want to respond to it. We want to sort of reflect and respond to what God says to us through his word, and there's something really beautiful about doing that in community as well. So as a family, uh, we're kind of journaling our way through John, and I'd love to see uh, all of you grab that and take it with you, bring it back here on Sundays, and we'll work through the text together. The series is called Love and Trouble because we're both looking at the ways in which God's love is put on display in the Gospel of John, but also at the ways in which when his love is made manifest, it is always disruptive, right? It never leaves people where it finds them. It always kind of stirs things up. It always kind of shakes things up. So there is both the love of God and the trouble that can be created for people who just wanted to maintain the status quo. And no place is that more clear than in John 4, right? In John 4, we see Jesus is traveling last Last week, if you were with us, we saw Jesus' disciples were baptizing in the same place where John the Baptist and his disciples were. There was a little bit of controversy there, a little bit of jealousy. We talked about the fact that no one receives anything except that which they receive from heaven in our study last week. And then immediately following that season where Jesus, uh, that, that time period where Jesus' disciples were baptizing, it says here at the beginning of John 4 that Jesus gets wind of the fact that the Pharisees are aware of the fact that he's baptizing more people than John, and so he leaves that area. Now, whether that is to suppress any semblance of controversy or contest, or whether it's to maintain a timeline that Jesus himself knows. We've seen already in the Gospel of John that Jesus has a very acute sense of the timeline, what he's doing as he's working his way toward the cross. Um, perhaps he leaves that area and stops sort of that baptism because he doesn't want the Pharisees uh, to sort of raise him up. You know, he, does, he doesn't want to be a you know, rebel leader at this point. But either way, it says he becomes aware of the fact that they, they know he's baptizing more than John, and so he moves. 
When Jesus learned, this is verse one, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So we see Jesus here on the move. It says in verse four, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, it's interesting here. Um, it, it is the, the fastest route. If you look at the map, the fastest route from the area where Jesus was baptizing to Galilee would be to pass through Samaria. But there were many Jews at the time who would actually go the longer route. They went further around in order to avoid the Samaritans. Uh, I'll be real frank with you. There was a, it's basically just racism uh, on the part of the Jewish people towards the Samaritans. The Samaritans were uh, what they considered, the Jews considered them to be half-breeds. They were the result of the, uh, when the Assyrians came and took them captive, took northern Israel captive, uh, there was some intermarriage. They left some of their people in this area and the Jews and the Assyrians that were there intermarried and as a result, the Jewish people saw the Samaritans as half-breeds. They saw them as dirty. They saw them as disgusting. They saw them, they saw their worship as counterfeit. Um, and so Jewish people many times would go a longer route to avoid a Samaria. But Jesus, it says in verse 4, had to go through Samaria. Now, I, I love the idea of us sort of thinking concretely about what that word had means, right? What does it mean that he had to go through Samaria? Well, it tells us something again about his intentionality. It tells us something about his purpose. When I read that word had, I'm reminded of the place in John 10, where we'll get in a little while, in John 10 where Jesus says in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, meaning not Jewish. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. We know that Jesus felt a sense of urgency and he felt a sense of intentionality on not just coming to the Jewish people, but on coming to all people, regardless of their position, regardless of their heritage, regardless of how they were perceived in culture, that Jesus felt this desire and this hunger to carry the message of resurrection life and the truth of who he was to everyone. So when it says Jesus had to go through Samaria, that's not just a, you know, sort of a, the smartest thing because it's the quickest route. But it's because Jesus had business to do in Samaria, right? Jesus had people of his flock that he needed to gather. And we'll see that here in John 4. Now this text is a very familiar one. And so I will give you a bit of a word of warning as we begin. That sometimes when we come to a text that's very familiar, uh, there are probably many of you in the room who could teach this text with your eyes closed. When you come to a text that's familiar, there is a danger, always a danger, of bringing your presupposition or bringing your sort of foregone conclusion to God's word and just sort of assuming that God won't say anything fresh to you through it. God's word always says the same thing. His word doesn't change. But Hebrews tells us that his word is living and active, right? What that means is that every time we come to it, we gotta tune in with fresh ears. We gotta look with fresh eyes. We gotta turn up the hardened soil of our heart and prepare ourselves to receive the implanted seed of God. God's word. So as we look at John 4, even though it's familiar, there are a couple of different lenses I'd like us to look through it with, right? The first lens is this. In everything that Jesus does, he's painting a picture for us of what God is like. So in the text this morning, I'm going I'm to see and, and demonstrate to you there are six key things that Jesus demonstrates in his interaction with the woman at the well that are indicative of the very character and nature of God. Jesus is putting God on display, right? We know no one has ever seen God, but the Son of God has made him known, right? So one of the lenses, maybe the most macro lens, is what does Jesus' activity with the woman at the well tell us about the nature and character of God? 
The next lens down, if you want to just kind of scale it back, the next lens down is that for many of us in the room, we consider ourselves followers of Jesus or disciples of Jesus. That's what that word means. And so our lives, at some point or another, have become dedicated to imitating the life and work of Christ. At some point, for many of us, we made the conclusion that we weren't going to live the way we want to live or do the things we want to do, but rather we want to emulate and carry the character of Christ. We want to put him on, take off the works of darkness and put on Christ, right? And so for many of us, when we look at Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well in John 4, there's also a lens in which we look and go, how do I interact with other people? I want to interact with other people the way that Jesus interacts with other people. And there's great guidance for us in John 4. The third lens would be for those of you in the room who wouldn't necessarily call yourself a disciple of Jesus. Maybe you're a searcher. Maybe you're somebody who has questions about God. Maybe you're not even sure what you're doing here this morning, right? Maybe you just felt like, I I should be in church, or maybe a friend invited you or whatever, but you don't have a relationship with Jesus where you sit right now, and there's there's great stuff for you in this text. So if you're not someone who follows Jesus, let me say, this text should be very eye-opening for you, because the third lens this morning is it declares to us the way Jesus perceives those who don't even know they need him, right? Who don't even understand exactly who he is. If you're here this morning and you've not engaged with Christ before, if you don't know anything about him, there's much to pay attention to here about the way he sees you and the way he loves you. And so as we walk through the text, let's do it with those three lenses. Back to John chapter four, I think it's very interesting. It says, he left Judea, departed again for Galilee, that's three, and he had to pass through Samaria. Look at verse five. It says, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour is like high noon, right? Sun's fully in the sky, so it's hot and dry. And it says that Jesus was wearied from his journey. I'll tell you, this would be a verse that would be easy to skip, but let's stop and think about it for a second. I actually really love the fact that it says Jesus was wearied, right? Because I think sometimes we think about Jesus in terms of like his super, superhero-ness, you know what I'm saying? He seems like a superhuman who never got tired, who never got weary, who never got thirsty, who never got hungry. He's like completely different than us. And in some ways, there is, there is a difference between the creator and his creation. But one of the coolest things about the incarnation, that's a big word that basically means Jesus came and took on flesh. One of the coolest things about the incarnation is that he experienced life the way we do. So in our thirst and in our hunger and in our weariness and in our sorrow, Jesus experienced those things. Jesus here, it says, is wearied from his travel and he sits down at the well. We're going to see in a second that he was thirsty. So thirsty and tired. And yet what I'd want you to see right out of the gate is that neither of those positions precluded him from interacting with this woman, right? How often do you and I use our fatigue as an excuse to not engage? How often do we use our hunger or our thirst or whatever it is, our humanity, right? In our weariness, there are lots of opportunities to go, hey, you know what? I would chime in here. I would say something. I would give something to this person. I would serve this person. But I was up so late last night. I am so tired. Can I tell you that sort of the ongoing kind of condition of those who are following this particular rabbi, this Jesus, will be fatigue? It is tiring to follow Jesus and to serve him. It can be exhausting to serve him, and that's not an excuse to opt out of engagement, right? So often I talk to people and I go, hey, how are you? And the the thing they lead with is tired or weary. And that may be true, 
But in the moments in which you and I sort of use our fatigue or our weariness to close our eyes to the needs of people around us, to close our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the needs of those around us, we've stopped following the way of the master. Does that make sense? In his weariness, he still has eyes for those who are hurt, for those who are lost, for those who are tired themselves. Wearied as he was, he sits down by the well, and then we're gonna sort of walk through it a little bit at a time. It says here in verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? I want to give you six things, six demonstrations of the character of God that we see demonstrated by Jesus here. And the first one is that he cares about other people, right? And that might seem so base as to not even need mention, but for those of us who are looking at it through the lens of a disciple who wants to imitate the life and ministry of Christ, caring about others is a necessary first step. And it might not seem like it needs to be said, but unfortunately, it needs to be said. I think there are many of us who've sort of fallen into the trap of caring about people who are like us, or people that we've got a relationship with, or people that we understand, or maybe people that we like. And we've started to care about people in our tiny little circle, but we lose our compassion and our care and our concern for people that maybe don't fit into the mold of those we feel called to care about. Can I tell you, I love the juxtaposition here between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Because Nicodemus was a man, and he was a well-educated man. He was a well-respected man. He was a man that was revered in his culture. He he was well-educated, right? And then we see this woman at the well, and she's none of those things. She's a woman. She's not only a woman, she's a Samaritan woman, whereas Nicodemus was a Jew. She's not only a Samaritan woman, she's likely uneducated and illiterate because of the culture. Not only that, she's coming out at the sixth hour, which may be an indication that she's an outcast. So instead of being revered and respected and honored in her culture, it's likely that the reason she's out drawing water by herself is because of her life and she's been rejected. So these are two opposite ends of the spectrum. Nicodemus we saw at the beginning of John 3 and the woman at the well we see at the beginning of John 4 and what I want you to see here is that Jesus engages and offers life to both of them with no regard for their class, with no regard for their sex, with no regard for their reputation, with no regard for their income level, with no regard for the color of their skin. He loves and sees them all and cares about them all. He cares about them. He cares about them. The question we have to ask ourselves first is, Do you care about other people? And it's a weird one, right? It's a weird one because your gut instinct is to go, yeah, of course I care about everybody. Do you? I think we have to look at the model of Jesus here and the fact that he heads into Samaria, a place that other people would go around, that he's intentionally engaging here with people who were outcast. And we have to think about our own care, that Jesus cares about them. I love uh, in Matthew chapter 12 where it says, out of the good, right? In Matthew 12, 35, It says, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil, right? What do we see coming out of Jesus' mouth? It's what's in his heart. Care for other people. Love for other people. So Jesus cares. Despite the fact that she's different, 
Not only does he care, the second thing I want you to see in the text is that he initiates, right? He initiates the conversation. He's the one who starts this thing going. She comes out to draw water and she sees a Jewish man sitting by the well for some reason and I'll tell you what, she's never gonna start this conversation. There's never gonna be a point where she goes, hey, can I get you something to drink? Because she knows he wouldn't wanna drink out of her cup. She knows he doesn't wanna talk to her. As a Jewish man and a rabbi, he doesn't wanna have a conversation with her. So she would've kept her mouth shut. She might have turned around and gone back away, but Jesus initiates. The second thing we see about God in this, character, in this story, not only that he cares about people, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they've come from, but he initiates. That's what the incarnation is, right? All through the book of John, we've seen that God goes out and finds people, even the ones who think in their own sort of pride that they found God. It's always Jesus seeking them out. He is the initiator. He is the one that initiates the conversation. He's the beginning, right? God comes to us in the flesh, in the form of Christ. That's him initiating. Jesus looks at this woman and he says, give me a drink, right? Give me a drink. Because he wants to have the conversation with her. He wants to stir it up. I think this is the hardest part for many of us. We read the passage in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission where it says, go into all the world and make disciples. And we go, ah, I'm just gonna kind of camp out here and I'm gonna wait for them to come to me, right? I'm just gonna live a really good life and I'm gonna hope that at some point the people across the street come over and go, you know, we've been noticing that you live a really good life. Can you tell us about your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> Look, I'm so glad you asked. I've been waiting for somebody to ask me that question, right? Jesus doesn't wait for her to talk to him because she won't. Can I tell you what? In the world in which we live, it's very rare. It's not, it's not totally uh, impossible, but it's very rare for people who don't know Jesus to come up and go, hey, let, let's have a conversation about your faith. If anything, our culture is the opposite of that. They don't want you to talk about your faith, right? But there's an intentionality. He initiates because he cares. And he initiates, thirdly, he initiates on a level that she relates to. I love this. Look, look back to John chapter four again. I love that the conversation sort of centers around water. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. This is verse seven. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She's shocked by the engagement, by the initiation. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He's taking exactly what's relating to the conversation they're in right now and having a conversation that, that will absolutely relate to her scenario, to her situation. The third thing I want you to see is that he's relational. He's relational in his interaction. He doesn't just have a, a pre-programmed speech he wants to give, right? She comes to the well, and he goes, hey, can you give me a drink? And she goes, why are you talking to me? And he's like, well, I'm talking to you because, do you know the four spiritual laws? You know, he draws a picture of the two cliffs with the cross that connect them or whatever. He doesn't have like a tract he's trying to hand out here. There's not a pre-programmed speech he's trying to give. He actually sees her, and he sees her situation. He sees the context that the both of them are in, and he uses that context as a relational way to engage with her, right? I was at, uh, in uh, 1996, on, in October of 1996, I was at this big Christian concert, 
I, I used to be in a Christian band, and on Halloween, we did this big concert in Phoenix at the, it used to be called the America West Arena. I don't know what it's called now, but it's where the, Sun, the Phoenix Suns play. And uh, after we did our part of the concert, I was kind of just walking around on the, you know, like the circle that goes around the arena and looking at all the vendors and all the people selling stuff and whatever. And I, I was stopped by a college girl who was working at a booth for an organization called True Love Waits. You know what that is? True Love Waits, I, don't, I think they're still doing stuff, I don't, I don't know, but uh, back in the day, like this was in the 90s, like I said, 96, uh, they, were, they were like all over the place, and their, their whole thing was, uh, they had this like abstinence pledge, right? So they're trying to get people to pledge to remain abstinent, and so this girl stops me, and she goes, hey, sir, can I talk to you for a second? And I was like, uh, yeah, you know, okay, sure. She goes, are you familiar with True Love Waits? And I'm like, yeah, great organization, like you guys are doing really good stuff, and she's like, well, have you signed our abstinence pledge? And I said, no, I, I haven't. And she goes, you know, you really should. And I said, well, I, I appreciate that. I said, but, and she goes, sir, I don't know what you're waiting for, but this is important. She's like, do you have you read your Bible? And I'm like, well, I, I, yeah, I have. I have read my Bible. And she goes, you understand what the Bible says about abstinence, right? And I was like, I, yeah, I do. And she's like, so why haven't you made the pledge? And I said, well, there's, there's a, and she goes, listen, no excuses, no argument. She's like, I got clipboards right here. She's like, you should sign the abstinence pledge don't you want to be pure before God? I'm like, I really do want to be pure before God, you know? She goes, well, just sign it. And I'm like, okay. So I took the clipboard and I filled it out. You know, there's like a form at the end. You tear off, you get to keep a little thing that says, I will remain abstinent, you know? And so I filled it all out and she's like, you did the right thing. And I said, well, awesome. I said, tell me, do you guys have any literature for how to explain this commitment to my wife? Uh, and uh, she, she, goes, she goes, What? And I said, yeah, I got, I got married in May, and so I've been married for about six months, and I said, I, I want to be pure before God, I know what the Bible says, uh, and you were very, very sort of one-track-minded, and now I've signed the pledge, and I just, I think my wife's going to have a hard time understanding this, you know? And she's like, you should not have signed the purity pledge! And I said, right, but I, what, I, what are we, she goes, we're going to tear it up. And I said, well, can we do that? Can we tear it up? She goes, we're tearing it up, right? And she tore it up, you know, and I'm like, okay, I'm free again for my, you know, <laughs> life of crime or whatever. So, uh, but what, what happened there? What happened there is that she wasn't paying at all, attention at all to me. She had a goal and an agenda, which was to get people to sign on the dotted line. She didn't look at my ring. She didn't ask me a question about my life. I even tried to get a word in, and I couldn't. But she had a goal that had nothing to do with my situation or who I am. Can I tell you that's a mistake a lot of Christians make, disciples make, and we're not following the model of Christ. You don't engage with other people with an end product in mind. You engage other people with them in mind, with the Lord Jesus in mind, right? You have to walk into each situation and think about the context. I, I honestly believe that if this was happening to me, you know, Jesus would probably have met me outside of a barber shop, you know, and he would have been like, sir, can I borrow your hairbrush? And I'd have been like, I don't have a hairbrush. And he'd be like, well, if you knew who you were talking to, you would have asked me, and I would have given you the hair plugs of life or whatever, you know? that will spring up in you long flowing golden locks to eternal life. You know what I mean? Like, give me these hair plugs so that I can, you know, whatever. It's about context. It's about the people in front of you. He cares about her. He initiates a conversation. And he also relates to her circumstance. It's interesting, her response. Back to the text, look at it here. He says in verse 10, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See, see how that fits the context? This woman who's coming out to get water, he goes, I got, I got better water than, than you even know about. She says this in verse 11. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? I kind of suspect at this point, she's, it's sort of clicking in her head that he might be nuts. You know what I mean? That he might literally be a, I think she's sort of scanning the area to see like if he has a handler or something. Like isn't somebody supposed to be watching you, you know? He's like, I have living water and you'll have eternal life. She goes, sir, you don't have a bucket. You don't have anything to drink from, right? How are you going to get this living water, right? Is a spacecraft going to land? And you know, what's the deal? He says this. She says, how do you get this living water? She also says in verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. It's an interesting question. I think she's trying to vet him to see if he's bonkers, right? She goes, are you, are you greater than Jacob? Is that the deal? You're greater than our, our father Jacob who gave us this well and who drank from it himself with his sons and his livestock? The interesting thing about her question is, yeah, he is, right? I imagine that with a smirk, Jesus is thinking, oh, you think Jacob gave you this well? I invented water. <laughs> right? So Jacob's, Jacob's just sort of the clearinghouse for this whole thing, right? Right? She looks at him and says, are you greater than our father Jacob? And the answer is, yeah, he is. He looks at her and says this in verse 15. He says, everyone who drinks of this water, Jacob's water, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is superior to Jacob. The well of living water that is the Lord Jesus is greater than the well of Jacob. Because the well of Jacob can satisfy your thirst for a moment and then you gotta come back and get more water. You gotta get another sip. You gotta get another drink. Jesus says the well of water that is me, this living water, it becomes a well in you for eternal life. You don't have to come back again and again and again. You are satisfied. What's the fourth thing we see here? Not only does Jesus care, and not only does he relate, not only does he initiate, but he gives. He gives. He's not talking to her about something that he owns the copyright to, right? He's not talking about something he knows that he can't share with her. It's not some proprietary thing that he's holding on to tightly. He's not lording it over her. There isn't a sense in which he's going, hey, I don't know about you, but you got to come out here and get water all the time. Sucks to be you. I don't have to do that because I got living water. Bye, right? No, what's he doing? He's, He's extending it to her. He's giving it to her. He's creating in her a desire, He's actually just pointing to the desire she already has. She's already thirsty, and not just for water. She's thirsty for more than that, and he sees that. Why? Because he's looking at her. Because he's looking at the situation and the circumstance. He's paying attention. He cares about her. But he creates this desire, and he's, he's offering something to her. I think sometimes we fall into a trap as Christians, again, as his disciples, of not emulating God in this. God is a giver. He's a gracious giver who gives without, you know, with, without weighing what we deserve or what we've earned. He doesn't trade with us. He doesn't require payment. God gives. And I think a lot of times his disciples, including myself, we tend to be a little bit stingy. Like, look at what I know, and look at what I've experienced, and look at what I've got. And the rest of the world, the people I'm bumping into at the gas station or at the grocery store or whatever, I never turn the corner to go, you could be alive as well. 
This resurrection life that Jesus has given me by his grace could be yours. It's not something I'm exclusively the right holder to, right? Not something just for me, but for everyone. Jesus gives. He gives. He puts the gospel in terms she can understand, and he amplifies her need. It's not just a display of what he has. Fifthly, I want you to see here that he convicts. He convicts. This is a hard one for us. I think a lot of times we, we like to talk to people about the love of Jesus and the happiness of Jesus and he answers our prayers and he, and he makes rainbows come, you know, and doves land on your shoulders sometimes and he'll feed you grapes. Or like we, we sort of paint this picture of following Jesus as this rainbow, you know, my little pony land because we think that's the most persuasive way to invite people to follow Jesus. We think it's the most persuasive way to go, hey, do you want to feel good? You want to be happy? You want to be accepted by your peers? You want to be loved more than you've ever been loved? Then follow Jesus because it's sunshine and rainbows from there on out. And when we pitch that kind of a message, what happens is people go, oh yeah, I do, I do want to feel good. I do want to be respected by my peers. I do want to feel more loved. Than I, I want to feel more satisfied. I, I want, I want, I want. When we, when we position the gospel as something that, you know, hey, do, would you like all of these things? Then people start following Jesus and they realize really quickly, he says in Matthew 10, all men will hate you because of me. You're going to be flogged and you're going to be chastised and parents are going to kill their kids and kids are going to kill their parents. They're going to call you the devil. They're going to drag you in front of their magistrates, right? It's not all sunshine and rainbows following Jesus. It can be very fatiguing, as we've already said. But more importantly than just the, some of the difficulty in following Jesus is that you don't need, you know, we talk a lot about people needing to be saved. You probably heard like the old southern pastors like, folks, today what you need is to be saved. You got to get saved, you know, whatever. And you're like, what's he talking about? You know, that's actually a really good word for what Jesus does. He saves us from sin and death. Don't let that word become cliche to you. Don't let that word become something ancient to be discarded. The work of Christ is saving work. It's work of salvation. Why, why is that necessary? Because we are dead and lost in our sin. And so part of this whole thing, part of Jesus' interaction with her is not just going, hey, would you like to never be thirsty again? Hey, would you like to not have to keep coming out here to get water? But part of it is to, to peel away the mask, the facade that she's put up and to go, you're actually thirsty for more than water. You're actually broken, you're hurting. It's why he brings up this next question. So she, he says to her, it would be this spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 13, she says, sir, give me this water so that I not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I don't want to have to come here. I don't want to have to keep coming out here in the middle of the day. It's embarrassing. This town hates me. I'm an outcast. I don't want to have to keep coming out here. So make my life easier, right? That's what she's saying. Can you make my life simpler and easier? I would like to be able to stay home in the dark rather than having to come out here in the light every day. Jesus looks at her then in verse 16 and he says to her, go call your husband and come here. She says, I don't want to have to keep coming here. And then right after that he says, not just you need to come here, go get your husband and come here. Now I want you to think constructively about this for a second. Why does he ask her to go and get her husband? We don't put our faith in Jesus as couples, right? We don't put our faith in Jesus as teams. We don't put our faith in, that's one of the beautiful things about faith, about belief, is that it's something that happens in, in you as an individual, it doesn't have to do with whether your parents are followers of Jesus or whether your friends are followers of Jesus or whether you're surrounded with Christian people. It has to do with whether or not you believe in him. So why does he look at this woman and say, go get your husband and bring her back? Because her husband's not necessary for the conversation about living water they're having. So why, why invite him? 
Jesus asks this particular question because as it says in John 2, 25, he didn't need man's testimony about himself because he knew it was in a man. Jesus knows what's going on in her. He sees her. He cares about her. He loves her. He asks the question to pull away the mask, to pull away the mask and the facade. I would guess that there are some of you, looking through that third lens, I would guess that there are some of you who've got beautifully crafted facades, beautifully crafted masks, and your whole life is a pretense It's all a fiction to try and cover up the guilt and the shame and the regret, to try and cover up the the brokenness in you, to try and cover up the things you're hungry for, the things you're thirsty for, that you know aren't healthy for you, the things you've been trying to satisfy yourself with for years and years and years and they have never satisfied. So we put on these masks to just kind of get through the day. Jesus looks at her and he says, go and call your husband, not because he needs her husband there, but because he wants to have a conversation about truth with her. She looks at him and she says this. He says, go call your husband. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus answered her with a wink. I th- there was like a wink or maybe just a little bit of a like, you know, whatever. A little bit of irony. Jesus says, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. It's interesting how when we're trying to maintain a mask or when we're trying to keep up our facade, we become really good at at not lying technically, but figuring out ways to sort of wiggle around it. She goes, I don't have a husband. And he's like, oh, you actually said something true to me, which is what I'm after. But the reality is, ma'am, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband, right? What's he doing? He's expressing to her that he knows the truth of who she is, that he sees her, that she can't hide. But what I want you to see here is that he doesn't, he's not shaming her. This woman's experienced plenty of shame. She's experienced plenty of grief, plenty of sorrow. We don't know from the text whether or not the circumstances of her life, these five husbands and this current guy, whether that's a a result of things that were happening to her, whether that's five men in the past that discarded her like trash. And so what she's thirsty for in her life is just someone to love her and care about her and treat her like a child of God. Maybe that's what's happened to her. Or maybe her her situation and the the scenario she's in that she's trying to cover up is a result of her own choices. Maybe it's not the result of someone else's abuse. Maybe it's that she's gone from man to man to man to man trying to satisfy this hunger, trying to satisfy this thirst within her. Either way, my friends, whether it's something that happened to her or something that happened because of her own choices, either way, she's desperately thirsty. And not just for well water. Jesus says, you've spoken the truth to me. You've had five. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. He pulls away the mask and he says, I see you. But not to shame her. That exposure is to create relationship. He doesn't chastise her. He doesn't rebuke her. He says, I know who you are. Which should then stir up the question, what's he still doing there? And maybe in her heart, she's thinking, gosh, if he knows all this about me, it's really weird he's talking to me at the well. She tries to change the subject. She either tries to change the subject, we don't know for sure, she either tries to change the subject here or she, um, or she recognizes that he's got some kind of prophetic gift, right? Because here's what she says. He says, you, you, the guy you're with now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now either she's trying to misdirect or she's acknowledging that something supernatural is happening here, right? Something special. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. What's she doing? 
Well, she's trying to take, take the attention off herself. She's trying to push that light, that spotlight away. Jesus is just trying to spotlight, right? Remember what it says in 320, uh, people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. He's just pointed in the fact that she's currently living in a situation with a man that is not her husband. So regardless of how things went down before, she's currently living in sin. He shined that light on her, not to shame her, but simply to show her her thirst. And she tries to push the light away by focusing on a theological conundrum, right? Isn't that so classic and typical? How many times have you been trying to talk to people about the love of Christ or the gift of resurrection life? And they're like, yeah, but you know, Christians have started a lot of wars over the years. You're like, right, we, yeah, okay, right, we could talk about that, but let's talk about Jesus and how much he loves you. Well, what about this whole thing with gay marriage? Or what, you know, and, and we want to sidestep into theological conversations, but note here, Jesus, he doesn't say, no, we're not going to talk about that, right? She says to him, sir, I can perceive that you're a prophet. Are we supposed to worship here in Samaria, or are we supposed to worship on the mountain? Because everybody's kind of arguing about it. The Samaritans had built their own temple, Uh, on a mountain, it had been torn down, but they were still worshiping in a different place. And there was a lot of argument about which place was right. Jesus looks at her. He he doesn't say, we're not gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about you and your husbands. No, no, no. He, He follows her line of thinking. He leans into the question that she asks, but he focuses her. He focuses her. Look at what she says. She says, where are we supposed to worship? And he says this in verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. She goes, hey, answer a question for me. I I can tell you're a prophet because you know some stuff about me. Answer me this. Are we supposed to worship here or there? Jesus goes, eh, eh. Right? It's not about here or there. God doesn't care about where your feet are planted. He cares about the posture and position of your heart. Jesus says, Samaria, Jerusalem, doesn't matter. God doesn't care about your physical location, your GPS coordinates. He cares about the posture of your heart. God is spirit, Jesus says, and he is seeking worshipers. What is it that Jesus is doing in Samaria, by the way? What's he doing? He explains what he's doing there. Remember very, way back at the beginning where it said Jesus had to go through Samaria? Why? God is seeking worshipers. What's he doing at the well with this woman? God is seeking worshipers. He's trying to draw worship out of this woman and he says it doesn't matter if you worship here or there. It's the wrong question. The reality is God's looking for someone to worship him. He's looking for people to worship him in spirit and in truth. What's the opposite of spirit and truth? Flesh, right? Just the physical motion of it and lie or pretense, falsehood, right? And isn't that sort of what we fall back into so easily? We just sort of go through the physical motions of worshiping. Or we just sort of go through the motions of asking religious questions or looking spiritual. But Jesus says, God's not interested in your posturing or your falsehood. He's not looking for fakers. He's looking for spirit and truth. Well, what's the truth about her? The truth about her is that she's had five husbands and the guy she's living with now is not her husband. And yet there is still the potential for worship in her. Jesus is going, it doesn't, It doesn't matter where you've been. What matters is that God is seeking you. He's looking for worshipers who will worship him in truth. Take that mask off. You don't need it. He knows her fully, and he loves her still. What we see about God in this text is that he cares. He initiates. He relates to their situation. He gives. He convicts. And he centers. He centers 
What, what do I mean by that? I mean, Jesus is drawing the conversation back to himself. She says to him at the end of this, he says, God's looking for those who will worship him in spirit and truth. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. Now again, maybe she's waking up to the fact that that's who she's talking to. I think it's probably more likely that she's trying to dismiss his statement as non-authoritative, right? He says, God's looking for people to worship in spirit and truth. He doesn't care about your mountain or Jerusalem. He cares about the posture of your heart. She goes, eh, probably not worth us talking about because the Messiah is going to come and he'll, he'll tell us. He'll solve it for us, right? And then Jesus does what she's been unwilling to do. He does what she's been unwilling to do. What has she been unwilling to do? Admit the truth about who she is. Jesus looks at her. She says, we're waiting for the Messiah. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus looks at her and he says, I who speak to you am he. What's he doing? He's declaring the truth about himself. He's inviting her into a relationship where truth is the baseline. He declares himself as the Messiah for the first time in the Gospel of John. And when he declares himself as the Messiah for the first time in the Gospel of John, he does it with a woman who's an outcast in her city. Don't let the significance of that pass you by. Jesus looks at her and he says, that's me. I am the one. I'm the Messiah. And, I, and for the record, I did just tell you all things, right? I just did that. I can give you a spring of living water welling up in you to eternal life. This gift is on offer. For the record, uh, Jesus never gets his drink in John 4. <laughs> I don't know if he's going to come back around to that at some point, mention it to her, like, hey, I asked for a drink and you, we, you know. He never gets his drink. Why? Because that's not what he cares about. Even in his thirst and his physical weariness, what he cares about is that lady. So there are a couple of lenses here this morning. The first lens is, what does this tell us about God? It tells us that God is a seeker, right? You hear a lot about people being seekers, seeking God. Can I tell you, before any people seek God, God's already sought them. No one comes to the Father, or no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws them, Jesus says. Jesus is the seeker. Jesus is looking for worshipers to worship him in spirit and truth. He's drawing people to himself, right? We see that God loves, he cares, he gives, he relates, he convicts, and he centers us on himself. So from that lens, we learn some things about the character and nature of God. As disciples, those of you in the room who are followers of Jesus, what we learn is that we should also live and interact just like that. That is a great pattern, a great method, and a great message. The mentality of Christ is one that we would want to put on because it's an influential approach, in the lives of those we come into contact with at the grocery store and in our vocations and in our neighborhoods and whatever, to care, to relate, right? All of these things we can put into our own lives. Uh, one, one of our pastors this week at our teaching team meeting, he said one of the most frequent ways that people meet with God today is when we carry him into situations, right? Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 20 says, we are his ambassadors. Just before that, it says he's given to us the message of reconciliation, that men do not have to pay the penalty for their sins, but that he's reconciling all people to himself. We are his ambassadors. How does this story work today? Yes, people can meet God through his word. People can meet God in a, in a building like this where worship occurs. People can meet God by his spirit speaking to them supernaturally. But most commonly, people meet Jesus like this today when we go as his ambassadors and sit down on the side of a well. That's how people meet him today. That's one lens, the lens of who God is, the lens of who we are in light of who he is, and then the last lens is this, and I'll be done. There are some of you, as I mentioned at the beginning, who don't know Jesus, and when you look at this text, you go, well, 
I'm not trying to follow Jesus. I'm not even entirely sure who he is. Can I tell you, through that lens, you learn some things about him as well. As we look and put ourselves in the shoes of this woman, what we see is that God cares about you, that he sees you, that he relates to your situation, that he wants to set you free, that he knows you intimately, invites you to set aside your posturing and pretense, and receive the water of resurrection life, which is just a picture of the life Jesus gives. That no matter who you are, what you've done, whether you're like a Nicodemus, well-respected, well-revered, well-educated, well-liked, or whether you're like the woman at the well who's an outcast, God cares about you the same. He knows you fully and loves you still. There's a great, uh, there's a great quote by Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York. He says, to be loved and not known is comforting, but superficial. Let me say that again. To be loved and not known, that's nice, right? It's comforting, but superficial. For people, they love you, but they don't really know you right? The inner you. He says to be known and not loved is our greatest fear, right? That when people figure out what's behind the mask, when they figure out who we are to be fully known and not loved, that's what we're terrified of. That when people see the truth, they'll reject us. To be fully known and truly loved, to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, can I say this? He knows you. He knows you. And he has to meet with you. He wants to meet with you. He knows you fully and he loves you still. Everything about you It makes the mask unnecessary. It makes the pretense and the posturing a waste of time. Knowing that the God of the universe knows you and loves you changes everything. Whatever you've been thirsty for, whatever you've been hungry for, whatever you've been trying to satisfy that hunger and thirst with, Jesus is the only one who can satisfy with resurrection life that springs up in you as a constant source, as a constant satisfier because of who he is. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, I invite you right where you sit to just call out to him in the quietness of your own heart. Say, Jesus, I see that you see me and you know me and you love me. I'm trying to get my arms around these things, but will you rescue me from sin and death? Will you rescue me from myself? I need the living water that only you give. We believe according to the scripture that no matter where you're sitting in the room, if the posture of your heart is spirit and truth, right? If you're calling out to Jesus and saying, I believe that you're the son of God, that you rose from the dead, that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. If you're turning from that old broken life and turning to the life that only comes through Christ, then by his grace, when you cry out to him, we believe that you are made new where you sit. God, I pray that you would stir in the hearts of those who don't know you a clear and full understanding of your knowledge of them and your love of them and the fact that those two things are simultaneous. For those of us who are already your followers, those of us who consider ourselves disciples, will you convict and challenge us of the ways in which we need to put you on in our interactions with others? And for all of us in the room, will you open our eyes to the truth of who you are and your great compassion in your relevance, in your initiative, in your giving, your grace, when you center us on you, 
we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.